Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, we were playing cricket yesterday out the front and I'm pretty sure I got heat stroke. Actually, a fucking in, an insane story. Um, I was out the, out the back of the house uh, hanging up some washing and I kid you not, a meteorite fucking fell down and landed at my feet. I literally picked it up and it was roasting hot and I was like, that is insane. And my mate came round, Michael, and his dad's a forensic scientist uh, and he drove round today he's like, that didn't happen. That is insane if that happened. He's like, it's like the odds of that happening is silly. Uh, and he came out, we were sitting out the front in the sun on this old, like, uh, children's desk that I've got, um, put in the magnifying glass and the meteorite underneath it. And it was, he confirmed it. I was like, that's insane. So I've got, I think, I think I've got to go declare it to the government. (laughs) Do you actually? Apparently anything that falls out of space in West Australia is owned by the government. So... I, don't, I think it's because they fucking make money off obviously selling minerals, but <laughs> anything minerals like mine it, mine it. I think I think it's just because it's uh, it's interesting. They probably want it at the museum. I feel like you've got to keep it though. You've got to kind of have that thing forever sitting on the mantelpiece. That's, that's what I'm thinking. It's so light. It's weird. It's like this porous rock with holes in it and sort of like tiny, but it's fucking hard as steel. Like almost like volcanic. But light as a feather. Yeah, it is like that. It's weird. Lucky it didn't hit you. Imagine if it had been a few inches well, the way. Literally, if it, it was like almost hit my foot, and I was like, I think it would have gone through my foot. <laughs> Man, it's crazy because they like when they're coming into the atmosphere, they burn up, don't they? So that would have entered as a much bigger rock, and then kind of just been eroded away. Yeah, it, ascend, we, uh, we've obviously uh, yeah, we started researching quite a bit on it, like um, all the different types of meteorites. We're like, what's this? What's this? But uh, it's interesting. I feel like um, we've got to talk this Jungle Book cover before we get into the record, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How long ago did you... Well, that was a couple months back now? You recorded that? Uh, it was a couple months back, yeah, we recorded that one in around about October, I think, or maybe a bit later than that. Yeah, but um, uh, we 
I had the idea since I think like February. I actually had a recording at home. I was sort of sitting on it because we originally were going to do uh, Queens of Stone Age, No One Knows, and we we're like, we'll fucking nail that and uh, get the uh, the rock kind of vibe. And we we're like, is it just too forward? Is th- that's what everyone's expecting. So we thought, all right. And my sister said, uh, do you do the Jungle Book? I think because they just, it might have been even last year the remake came out or. The, the Christopher Walken version. Oh, yeah, 2016. Christopher, yeah, that was it, yeah. Christopher Walken. Yeah, and um, <laughs> so I'd watched that and I was like, I like that, that's decent. So I thought, I it's literally the same drums as Mundungus. I just copied the drums over, <laughs> put it into a new, what do you call it? New file Session. on Ableton. I think I started on bass and then got that weird little lick down at the start. Yeah, it actually, it came out really well. It's probably the my favourite vocals I've take I've done or a live take. I usually hate my voice. I'm like, oh, that actually sounded all right. So <laughs> I was kind of pleased with it. Can you kind of learn things about your own sound when you know you take another song like that and kind of transplant it into the the wacky and wonderful world of psychedelic porn crumpets? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I think it's something that I wouldn't mind doing again. Actually, like uh, do, doing the covers thing. Because I remember. I've always hated covers and I don't know why I think it's like unless it's like a studio version or maybe just seeing someone live for instance their take but I think it's just because that's how everyone starts learning and you'd always just be like this is my version of this song this is my version of that song and so I've always been like like, I mean I'm a big fan of original content so but after I listened to the Flaming Lips cover the Beatles I think that was the first time I was like this is sick like the way they sort of really made that their own and there's been obviously some great covers uh, I mean throughout the time but no one everyone sort of slows them down or or doesn't really beef them up so I kind of was like alright how do we make something big band jazz almost that swing kind of style and really give it some 20s 20s vibe because a bit in a in a in a rock sort of sense or in a psych sort of sense. So yeah, it was a, a lot of pog sort of uh, at the back end of that track. We, we actually got a, a tick of approval from is his name Kipling, the guy who wrote the song for the original Jungle Book movie. Oh, but, but, one of his. Oh, one of the two brothers. It was it was a Kipling. Someone who wrote it, it was called Kipling. I think Rio his name Kipling. was. Uh, anyway, one, yeah, and one of the descendants. He emailed us and was like, I approve. <laughs> it's like, well done, which is nuts. Fan of the band. Yeah. Insane. Is it, um, I was just thinking there, you know, what we were speaking about, about this idea of taking a song and kind of making it your own and putting your own personality onto it. Is it a similar thing at all, you know, when you take a real world experience and you put it in a song? Because it does kind of shift a little bit once you put it, like we're saying, you know, that weird and wonderful world of psychedelic porn crumbs, when you put it into that technical soundscape yeah i think so i think i think i suppose oh well for me it's almost like I, I think all music is a memory or at least for me it's almost like a weird diary it, it, like an insert um like this happened on tour and i hate i don't really like getting a, a fictional so it's almost like things that do happen sort of do create you as a person and create where you're heading musically as well like what direction do you want to take and I know like for instance I'll be sitting playing guitar for like a couple of hours writing some weird acoustic thing and then the back of my head it's like well what what am I doing like is this what I want to be playing or is it sort of a does it encapsulate me and then I mean, everyone's got a thousand personalities. You don't just have one side of style and be like, all right, I'm just punk. I only listen to punk. I do that else. You sort of wouldn't grow as a person. So, yeah, I think 
I think just because when we are on tour and I suppose the last couple of years has been the band, I don't even feel like I've grown up since I've been like 21 or whatever. It's weird. I'm like now 28, like living my 20, like my 18 year old dream or my, my 15 year old dream. And I'm sort of like, what will I ever grow up? But it's still fun, which I think is, uh, if I can still keep making that real life experience, sound like our weekends then uh i think that's for me it's like job done yeah that's funny i was speaking to cameron avery a few months back you know the guy that plays in tame yeah he came on the podcast and he said exactly the same thing he said you almost kind of get frozen because i think he's early 30s now and he said he still feels like he hasn't grown up as much of all of his friends that weren't in bands yeah mate i the amount of times i've had been pulled over by one of my friends and be like mate you gotta grow up you're like (laughs) (laughs) same age but they are i think because everyone's uh i mean very fortunate they sort of don't have to do the nine to five or even really focus on work in a sense of being worried i mean i'm always worried about like uh, if like music and what if this happens or that happens or blah 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 and what if you forget how to write but I think as soon as you sort of get rid of that you just always you're always sort of the first point of call if someone goes out they're like oh I know Jack's not doing anything so I'll get Jack up and you're like you're free for a bit and, and then literally just out like seven days a week or you're playing golf or you've always got time or uh, but I mean, I do have a lot of days where obviously there's uh, writing sessions or, or interviews or whatever, but it's, I still have a day, which is nice. It's not like I've never got a period where I feel like I've completely swamped. And I think because of that and almost a carefree attitude towards life, days just sort of blend and you don't have to think as much and only, or only think about one thing. Because I'd say I've, I've definitely matured as a musician, but a musician isn't. I mean, what even is a musician? It's like <laughs> it's not. It's not like I don't know. At the end of the lot of people go down with the ship on the Titanic. So that's basically where we rank as a in, a, in the social scale of things. I feel. I don't, what's kind of Australia's approach to that in terms of how they value musicians? Because if you look at somewhere like France, I think maybe Germany a little bit as well. You know, subsidising and kind of encouraging that side of the culture. Yeah, they really look after them, don't they? I remember we toured with a band in France, actually. Um, I think it's a few times that we've been on tour and their whole year and their manager's wages paid for and they get money, obviously, like a grant. And um, we get grants here, but it might be for like $1,000 or maybe if you get a big one, it'd be like maybe 5000 10000 if you've got like an album or a plan or blah, blah. Like, they do help out here, which is really good. And... The new government that is in place at the moment, I think, is they've put in a bunch more money, which is amazing for artists who. I mean, I think I think one thing is like you get paid really well in Australia from music, regardless of sort of numbers. So, say if you put a gig on and it's ten dollars for a show, you generally get that ten dollars. Like you might pay a dollar uh, fee for the the hire of the venue or and they make the money on the bar and you take your money off door revenue whereas in england or when we went to france we played a 500 cap um was it 400 or 500 cap room in paris sold the place out and after paying the promoter the venue hire 50 percent tax because it's like not a treaty with australia we ended up with 30 dollars and it was like how the hell could you be a touring band and sort of do that? And I mean, 500 cap, if we did that, it was on like a 20 euro ticket. So that in Australia, that's, that's 
fuck yeah, I can't, that's 10 grand. But we ended up making $30. And so if, in Australia, you can really do a tour here. Say there's like five major cities or maybe six, if you're including sort of like head down and do some more regional places. You could do a tour, like 500 cap rooms on a $20 ticket and make 50 grand or 60 grand and then exclude flights and you're coming in profit. And that's from five or six shows. Whereas in Europe, you sort of do, I think the reason they probably do need the grant a bit more is because, I mean, I don't know how they've even set up music in Europe, but it, and in America, it's the same. It seems like the bands are just getting the, the dregs of whoever's making all the money. I think the, a promoter in Australia is not a thing. There's like, we just use, we got Facebook or you sort of tell people, or you promote your own shows. I mean, it feels uh, like a you, hangover from the old industry, doesn't it? It feels like something that's less relevant than it once was. Exactly, exactly. You've all, you've gone digital. The world's gone digital. Your music's fucking digital and, and it's free. So you're not making any money from that. And then you've still got a guy or a bunch of people. There's there's venue promoter and who hires a promoter who then uh, hires someone else to work door and then you've got to pay what are they called Tour booking manager. agent a booking yeah, the, agent. booking agent and uh but the booking agent will hire a book like a french booking agent so you go 10 percent, 10 percent, 10 percent, 10 percent, 50 percent tax 10 percent management <laughs> and then you've got nothing and it's but and you're paying for the van and the, everything flights so it is a, it is a weird industry touring i think one day hopefully if everyone starts doing the australian way I mean, there'd be more bands, there'd be more music, they could afford to do more records, and it's sort of a win-win for everyone, really. It seems like a way to boost the industry. I mean, it's, yeah, like you say, boosting it overall. Yeah, everyone wins, apart from a promoter. <laughs> <laughs> before, uh, before we get too far away from The Jungle Book, though, and Disney films, there was something else I wanted to touch upon in relation to Disney films, which was, was there an instance when Luke once thought he was Rafiki? <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he did. Uh, it was actually the first time. I don't even think Porn Crumpets was... We hadn't even jammed yet, I don't think. And we were down south in Denmark. And that's what the song Denmark was about, Dem- uh, Van Gogh and Gone. Yeah, we, so we went down there to record an album for Luke's band at the time, which was called Golden Slums. Uh, and the first night we ended up taking mushrooms and didn't get any writing done and second night we I can't remember what we had some pills and the third night we decided to take acid and we were like we hadn't written a song or anything or even, I don't even think we had the computer plugged in it was the daytime uh, we started tripping pretty early Luke had been out in the paddock it was I mean it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world down south in Denmark it's just green fields that literally meet the ocean in these pristine beaches and we were saying on this cow sort of farm, uh, so just green grass, like lush, like perfect weather, like 25 degrees, like nice summer day, no no breeze or anything. Luke thought, yeah, he would carry this big stick and had been staring at the sun the whole day because he just thought that he was like, look at the ripples around the sun. And me and Rory, like our friend, found him like, what, have you, what are you doing? Have you been staring at the sun all day? And he had blisters all on his lips and all on his oh. face. And he thought he was Rafiki. And we were like, you need some water. Like, and he was like, water, water. And trying to lead himself <laughs> to water. And he thought he was Rafiki. And it was, uh, that was probably still one of the funniest stories. Yeah, that was hilarious. Oh, man. Didn't you guys take um, acid with Tony Hawk one time as well? 
Oh, we didn't take it with Tony Hawk. We oh, were on no, acid. That, we, you were on acid with Tony Hawk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was down at Desert Days, but that was unbelievable meeting him because about five minutes earlier, Flying Lotus rocked up on like a golf buggy. He was getting dropped off to his green room. And I was like, oh my God, that's Flying Lotus. So I'm going to fucking, I'm going to shake his hand. And it was sort of the, back in the day when you could just approach someone and shake their hand. And it back in the there. good old days. Yeah, that was it. I was like, how you doing, Mr. Lotus, or something like that. And then he was like, oh, like, hey, mate. I, was like, I, I think I just muttered, like, I love your music. Looking forward to seeing you. So it wasn't like a lot, but I just remember being like, holy fuck, like, that's one of my heroes. We brought back into our trailer and Devo had come into the our green room and he knocked on the door the, it's like they're pretty old now it was weird to see them so you just used to see them with their like red red bucket hats on or the little lego hats or whatever they got the plant pot things and he was like oh we've just uh, this might be our last show uh, so we've bought a bunch of wine that we've made from our Napa Valley winery uh, would you like to come and drink some rosé with us <laughs> fuck yeah like that's, that's amazing and as we turn the corner to go sort of towards their sort of little area they've got um, at the backstage bit, uh, Tony Hawk was there and Rich just ran up to him and was like, Tony fucking Hawk. Uh, and then we were just like, holy shit. Just talk, and he was like, oh, like, who are you guys here to see him? Well, just pretty much listed the entire lineup because that was <laughs> the best festival I've been to. Uh, and he said his wife had listened to us and was a fan, which to us was like, no way. Like he knew Whoa. who we were. Yeah, mad. That's great. Where's he based now? Is he over in Australia? I think he's still in LA. I think he's a California man, isn't so he? Where was that festival then? Was that, that in was in California. LA? Yeah, ah, that okay, was. Okay, uh, okay. It was sort of out near um, Desert Day. I think the first one there was Joshua Tree, but it was just about an hour south of LA. So sort of around the more desert. It was beautiful. There was yeah, right on a lake, and you can swim in the lake. I mean, there was temples, flaming lips. Um, yeah, Flying Lotus headline one night, and so many like all the new bands as well. Like, um, was it Dive were playing, Wand were playing, Crumb were playing, Crumb were playing, Black Angels were playing. Yeah, it was sick. Even Wu Tang, Wu Tang headlined. <laughs> really? Whoa. Yeah, they they played one night. We got to come back to uh, Denmark. We mentioned it a couple of minutes back because I'm interested in the vocals on that was an accident, right? The kind of choppy thing you're doing. Yeah, it, it's literally it's a function on guitar rig, and I had a guitar going through that channel, and I left it on accidentally. I, I just copied and pasted it, and I think I was going to do another one. I swapped it over and didn't realize the vocals were on that channel. I started singing. It was like about sort of syncopate. I was like, "What the fuck's this?" And I was trying to go into sort of the back end of it. Like what? Because I, I think what what was different about that first record was so you can just hear me sort of trialing and figuring out how shit worked and uh, a lot of the vocals there isn't just one style of vocal setting it's like <laughs> everything is different and I think now it's like a lot of the newer stuff is like I'm sort of like all right I think that's my voice it sounds like that and I'm sort of happy with that sort of distorted sound but with Denmark yeah it was so such a sort of happy mistake that uh because originally when we sent it to Jelly, uh, the mixer who was working on that album, he was like, you can't do that. And I was like, what? He's like, you can't do that. I was like, no, but it's like, it's just weird. And he was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll try it and we'll see where we go. And he sort of cut all the syncopation out. And at the time I was just too nervous to sort of be like, oh, I don't, I think it should sound like this, but was sort of like, oh, like, okay. And Rish was like, nah, it's got to go. It's like that 
fucking syncopated bit's got to be back in. It's like, it's like glitching out and it's in time. And I was like, okay. And we sort of, I think that was the time when me and Jelly sort of became friends because before that it was like he was just working on our record. And then he was like, all right, if you want to come round, come round between two and five, blah, blah, blah. And I think every album since that, it's like, I don't even hand him anything. It's like, I would just literally be around his house from two to five and then we're tweaking every single detail and it's great it's, it's way better way to work with someone yeah if you could just build up that relationship yeah it was nice i think yeah i really i couldn't work with anyone else it'd be, <laughs> I just yeah it feels feels nice we kind of get each other's uh flavor or approach to music which is nice yeah were there any accidents like what happened on denmark you know where you do something unexpectedly and don't mean to that happen on the new record oh, all the time i think that's the only way i really work is trial trial and error <laughs> like um yeah like a, a, a good accident that seems to happen every record is my amp will die but there's like a almost famous saying with guitar amps it's like it's starting to sound really good it's gonna break soon so yeah you sort of have a, a couple of days or periods where it sounds like it's got a hole in it. I don't even know how to describe it, where it's kind of crackly and already, it's got this sort of a natural cutoff to to the sound of the guitar. So you're like not even really putting distortion through it. And that seems to happen a fair bit. Uh, another one was the glitch, like that sort of sound that I've completely built the whole album around was just me working out how to... I love, I know, I always go, go to town quantizing, which I think is, some people say it's blasphemous. Some people are like, well, if you've got that technology, use it. Use so, it, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm sort of on the latter half of that where I'm just like, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just go to town. And, and there's a function in um, Ableton where it's like Beats mode or Complex Pro. And usually you just use that Complex Pro sort of style because it's going to make everything smooth and it doesn't sound warped. But the great thing in Beats mode is it, thinks it's MIDI and so you're putting through your guitars and you're putting through vocals or anything naturally recorded and it warps the fuck out of it and if you put it up an octave it sounds like an organ or it sounds like it's it's just I don't know it's like a digital glitch and uh I remember having that on digital hunger and be like fuck that's the best thing I've ever heard and sort of utilized it as a an actual sound and I think as soon as I did that, I was like, wouldn't it be cool to do a whole album like that and sort of utilise that as the main focus? And that pretty much is what Shiger is. And I think I kind of wish that I didn't go uh, as excessive as I did in certain parts, but I've given it a concept which I think works to back myself up on why I did do that. So Makes it cohesive. And the other thing is it almost gives the whole record this slightly futuristic edge. Yeah, well, that's the the original. The original concept was supposed to be uh, a guy called Norton Gavin, who was a fictional character who we were going to create his greatest hits. Uh, he's like this old salty, washed-up rock dog who's uh, no one's heard his music before, but everyone in Australia thinks he's great. So it would sort of be like this sort of spinal tapish uh, thing. And uh, and I started writing all this music for like what a 70s rock album would sound like um and it sort of got to the point where i was like i can't do this idea it's like I don't, if no one gets it it's just it's just a bad meme and it'll just be be shit so i sort of changed it um or showed rish what i had and i was like what do you think of this album i pretty much showed him what i thought was the finished record in about march 
And he was like, I like it, but I think there's about four or five different album concepts here. So go, we, and we were like, well, I like Mundungus, I like Mr. Prism, I like Pute Box. Let's focus on that as the sort of style of the record. And as soon as we had that meeting and as soon as we sort of had that discussion, I was like, fuck, it was just almost clicked. I was like, that's it. And at the same time, I was watching, do you know all that deep fake stuff and the Google Deep Dream? And it's like, where well, you put someone's face in someone else's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like the AI just predict. And there's that Google deep dream where it's like making up shapes and it's trying to predict. It's like the internet looking in on itself, trying to work out what it's seeing and what the hell's going on. So like the concept quickly became a, an, like a deep fake AI trying to write a 70s <laughs> album. And I was like, and that kind of gave the concept of me using all these glitches uh, a theme. So it wasn't like when someone's like, oh, I hate how I did it. It's like, no, like, it's because it's supposed to be a computer trying to make music. And I thought that was funny, but also a kind of weird challenge. And it was like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, but it had to be narrated by a drunk drunk bloke. So it was like, <laughs> that That was the sort of, uh, the, the catch at the end, which I thought gave it a sort of hint of comedy rather than diving into being like Brian Eno and being like, this is full concept. But um, I, I thought it, yeah, I thought it was a, uh, a good way to sort of move forward from what we'd done previously and keep it sounded just entertaining and, yeah. and, and, and intriguing. Once you have that idea, does it almost start a chain reaction that then kind of carries through all the songs that you have? Yeah, I think that uh, I had a period where I was like, I'm shit, this is shit. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't even know how to play guitar. I don't know how to write a song. And and then there was like this week where I think I wrote Mango Terraria and Tripolosaur and Sawtooth Monkfish in like four or five days. It was just like bang, bang, bang. And I was like, wow, like where did that come from? And I uh, I like generally don't smoke weed at all. And I'd had a joint like with my brother. I was so baked. I was like, fuck. Like, and it was weird that I just was so creative for like three days. But I think like if I smoked weed like all the time, I'd just be an absolute nonce. It'd be, <laughs> I'd just be gone like <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wouldn't get anything done. But it was almost just that sort of looking at the same problem I had, just sort of from a different mindset. Um, it just really opened up. And I was like, everything that I was trying to be smart about and being like, all these time changes and the drums have to be this. And I sort of just scrapped it and was like, what's just fun? Like, what is fun to me? How do I make this childish, playful sound like intriguing for someone to just who's probably not listened to porn crumpets before have have a good time and i think i wanted to make it accessible as well which was uh something i think i could have gone in two ways like at the moment i'm sort of completely opposite headspace so i was like oh no now i gotta try and write something that makes me seem intelligent but i don't know you don't i don't really want to get caught up in that too much no well, what were the three songs though that you said that you wrote in the burst oh it was Mango Terrarium Tripolosaur and or, or Tripolosaur or whatever you want to call it and um, Sawtooth Monkfish uh, kind of scattered about the record to some extent but it's interesting when you kind of look at the track listing because a lot of the songs that kind of sit next to each other can almost be grouped into pairs like either thematically or sonically like Sawtooth Monkfish and Tripolosaur are all both like animals yeah Glitter and Glitter uh, Glitter Bug and More Glitter Pute Box and Mindungus, and then Big Dejan kind of leading into Tally Ho, and you've got other bits and bobs. What, why do you think that is that you can kind of group them like that? Do you write songs in bursts, like traditionally like you did there? Or? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's 
like that was probably rare. Like I don't think I've done that before where it's like in such a quick time frame where it was like I mean I definitely write songs I probably write two songs maybe two or three songs a week and if they're good or not it depends it's like I might have one idea of one of those songs where I'm like I really like that riff but I don't know what I've done with the vocals or the drums sound weird and then um, I'll try and always try and finish them because I hate getting like a verse and chorus in and not extending the sort of field of view that you're trying to push so the sort of I know giving myself a bit more time like or a day or two if I haven't if I'm if I'm not liking the song in like two days I'll scrap it and I'll be like it like might go away and then I might be in the shower one day or something or just like out and I'll be like oh what's that riff I'm like actually that's from that song that I was doing before and I was like oh what if I pair that with this and it sort of then becomes because I put the time into it maybe that week or months ago, it sort of comes and naturally back into your sort of psyche or whatever. And you're like, all right, now I can build off that. Or it might, you might not write something till a year later for things to work. Like Glitterbug and Pukebox was sort of, not, not B-sides from whatchamacallit, but they were just songs I hadn't finished and sort of had left and rested, which I've got heaps of material sort of like that, but then never come back. And usually, I think the good thing about an album is obviously a, I get to choose what people listen to. But also if I'd put out the linear progression of like, say first song I wrote in that album process to the last one, you'd probably hear it all blend together. And a lot of the riffs sound similar. A lot of the drum beats are probably the same. And maybe the vocal patterns are thematically similar. So it's sort of like when you like sort of do that decimation of tracks, you're like, I'll take, take one and 14 and 21. It's almost like a lottery, like, but they're obviously the best songs that I think work, but with Shiger, I sort of thought more about the album in that sense. So I was like, how does this flow with it? It's like you said, it was sort of more paired with uh, sort of, uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> Fucking sore monk toothfish. <laughs> yeah, and tripolosaur and, and try and blend it all together so it sounded cohesive and a bit more of a linear progression. What is a tripolosaur? <laughs> I think... I think it was like someone who thinks so much like it was like because I remember like a bipolar bear be like just fucking stupid day for thinking three things at once or or having conflicted uh, ideas but a dinosaur sounds big but then everyone because I didn't even think about it at the time it says trip so you're like everyone instinctively goes trip all the source which is still fine <laughs> is it, it's interesting as well that um Pukebox was one that was originally, or it kind of, you know, was gestating around the time of the last record because it feels like one that is completely emblematic of the soundscape of this album. The way, you know, you kind of have the digital textures the whole way through, and then it's almost like it's fraying digitally at either end, if that makes sense. So the way it kind of peters away with the, the glitchiness. Yeah, I think that for me was the song that I was like, that is the theme of the record. Like, because I, I dabbled in it, and I think you can hear it in. Uh, obviously Digital Hunger has a lot of it and then Desi's Adventure that last song where it's um, sort of utilising it more but not in riffs in chord patterns I think it must have been around the same sort of period where I was writing Pukebox and I was like alright sweet like I'll do that trick that I did for Digital Hunger on this and see if it works and then I don't think I did it that much for songs in between but then as soon as I sort of had like Mundungus definitely doesn't have any of that but then 
when Prism came around, it was like, I'll use that trick. And then it was like, literally, I used it as an instrument. It was like, after that, it was like, all right, sweet, let's use it. It was like Peepbox was sort of the the stepping stone into creating that uh, concept. And then once you have that, it almost becomes like another tool. Exactly. That's what I use. I think because it went... Uh, sometimes I'm like the production's fucking awful but I'm like I wish it, it I could have <laughs> cut down bits and pieces like there's no point in having this really heavy driving guitar it makes it sound smaller when in my head I'm like oh I'm making it sound massive so I've sort of learned that whole process of sort of going through that um, the mixing of that album was a big learning curve because usually I sort of go home and go I'll add more but this time around I was like I'll take stuff away and I probably should have t- taken more out but I think going into the next record afterwards it's like not minimal I think it's just you need to get the idea across in the best way possible so when I'd originally had Pukebox it was like so warped and there was so much going on and I just eventually was like take out all these guitars and just have three and just have the harmonies underneath one a glitch one and then that was sort of basically the, the idea of it. And I probably didn't even need this second guitar. I could have just been a glitch one bass line and something else underneath. Like, cause I think someone said, I think I was mixing it with jelly is like the human brain can only hear three melodies at once before it just sounds like clutter. And as soon as he fucking told me that, I was like a challenge. I was like, I didn't know I could do four. Yeah. And then, Oh, it took, it took, yeah, it took over me for a while. That one, trying to trying to make that happen. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. It is. I'll tell you something else that's interesting. It was fucking mad. I was talking to this guy the other the other day about bass frequencies because I always sort of start on bass first, like, or I'll have a riff, might play the guitar. As soon as I get the drums down, the bass comes in second. Just it seems like a lot easier to sort of build from there. Or if you're trying to work out a really weird chord, it might be easier to do just get that one note of the bass down and you can just make it sound as fat as possible but so we started talking about bass and then he was like oh I actually studied bass at university I was like what <laughs> like what a weird thing he's like yeah like so but he studied how elephants communicate through their stomach or through bass frequencies and then I was like well that's interesting he's like yeah well he was telling me about how in the 90s when they went the rave culture was coming up that it was only attracting males and they were like, they obviously couldn't work out why males loved this music, but females didn't. And someone said, why don't we drop the frequency of the bass to better shape a female's wider hips and sort of that torso sort of resonates differently. And they literally lowered the bass and all of a sudden they had more females at, um, at raves, which is insane. And then we started to, it is fascinating. Isn't it? And I was like, what if you could just, cause then he started talking about obviously the, the Americans were working on a bass bomb or something like that. It was like frequency oh, bombs. The sound bomb that could shatter a city. Yeah, that's right. And he was, so he was talking about that. And I was like, it's actually hectic how sort of minimal our knowledge of sound and frequency is in music. Like there's probably reasons why you like songs and someone else doesn't. And like, it might just be because you're built differently and your teeth are a certain shape. So it resonates in your skull weird way. Do you know what I mean? It could be your buildup. Yeah. Yeah, like rather than, I don't know, like I, I'm generally into punk like or, or this. It, yeah, it, it might even be, just be genetic build-up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this idea as well as an, of music being like a primal thing. For sure. Like it kind of, it taps into, there's this idea, isn't it? I can't remember what it is, but there's this idea that there are certain natural sounds in the world that spark things in you. And then when you kind of hear them in a similar fashion in music, it kind of achieves the same 
response in your brain. Yeah, and and that's nuts, isn't it? And also, once you have that emotion, you've always got it, and you're you're almost basically playing music to get that nostalgia of the feeling you had once you first heard it. It's a weird one because we were talking, me and Rich were talking about how. Obviously, we always talk about like what the fuck is music, and I think the only thing we do is because <laughs> the good news because it's album. now <laughs> what the fuck is what the, music? What the fuck is yeah. music? <laughs> That's a good name. I think I think because we used to just write songs, and now we're sort of writing albums, and now we're playing live, and you sort of think a bit more about it. And you're like, oh shit, like we actually this might be a job. Like, should we should we go and study it? Like, should we really go to town on what the hell is going on? And that usually just turns into a drunk conversation. Um, <laughs> but we sort of got to the point where we were just like, it's just nostalgia. Because I know I've read somewhere that I think it's after maybe 25 or 28, you stop listening to new music and sort of just build up a, a catalogue of sounds and things you've found or enjoyed. And then we'll only really listen to their new albums or their sort of uh, bands that you might have listened to ages ago but sort of rekindled your love for or their new album so it's not like you're going to find a 50 year old now who's just be like man trap music is my living like do you know what I mean it's not like you're going to be as excited because your brain has automatically made up its uh, its musical preference and so with that in mind it's like you almost have to literally write <laughs> as much music as possible in a short amount of time to sort of captivate that inner creative child or whatever's inside you that wants to create because in 10 years time you're probably not going to be like even like the same music and you probably cringe at some of the stuff you put out like which is a weird thought isn't it yeah I think whenever you put yourself into your future self's shoes it's a weird situation because you have no <laughs> idea what it's going to look like or what yeah, you're gonna, exactly. who you're going to be as a person or whatever. It's so it is weird. But do you think that? I mean, because I remember always being younger. I remember vividly like hating classical music and would always be like, "Who would listen to classical music? Like, what are you getting from that?" And now it's like the pinnacle. I'm like, "Holy fuck, this is insane!" It's like, and this is 400 years old. What? It's nuts. And then if you want to go into frequencies, how the hell did they piece together an orchestra? Like, think how long that would have taken to be like, this works with this, and this works with this, and this works with this. And now we're, like, 300 years or whatever in the future hitting a fucking metal disc uh, and some pigskins. It's like <laughs> whacking a drum kit. Yeah, thinking that's the best thing. There's something about classical music, though. I think the thing that the reason, part of the reason it's timeless is that it doesn't need one performer as well because it had to be recorded by being written down and anyone could play it. And obviously some people, you know, put their own spin on it, but there's almost something about it that's more universal in that sense and that anyone can kind of pick it up and do their own thing with it. You know, we're speaking about covers earlier, but it's not really the same. Like if you're doing a cover, you kind of have that, to change it. That's something different though, isn't it? I think, I think that in itself is like, you only want to hear covers in classical music. But even then though, if you've heard a version of someone do... I know, for instance, what's well known, like Claire de Lune. It's like you will have your version of that song that you really like, and then every time you hear it differently, played by another orchestra, you you probably won't like it because you're like, oh, like what are they doing with this section or that section? It's like people do. That's probably why I was saying I don't like covers or whatever. It's like, but I could hear the cover first and hate the original. It sort of depends which way around it is. I think once you've got a sort of 
distinctive like flavor or understanding of the reasons you like the details it's the same way that you know when bands sort of come out and they're brand new and they've got a sick ep and then they re-record those songs from the ep to put on the album and you don't like them yeah i usually find that i like them within the context of the album but prefer the initial one as a song on its own exactly and you would talk to that artist and go why like this is way better like what because i mean i think we always talk about it because there's songs that we've recorded and you're like, maybe I should change this or do it. I think I had that with Mandungus and I was like, I want to remix it or put it through something else. Like, you kind of can't though, because it's like the initial impact of what it had is already there and it's already building its nostalgia factor because people have heard that in certain contexts or a certain place and they've grown an emotion with it already. So by changing it, you're, you're eradicating all that feeling towards that piece of music. When did Mandungus initially come out? Oh, that was, I mean, I had that in the bank for, I wrote that song or the riff in Melbourne of 2017, I want to think. Um, and we were supposed to put it on, I think it was around the recording part two. And I just sort of left it. So I was like, oh, it's a joke. And I remember sort of, I mean, going from part one and part two, I was in such a, you're in your, your wank, wanky magnum opus <laughs> mindset. We're like, everything has to be brilliant. And I sort of like, oh, look, like, it's a joke. So now I'm sort of just like back into sort of a bit more of a, just trying to have fun, I suppose, mentality. But um, that was recorded about two years ago, I think. And that was the first song we did with Sam at Tone City. Because I think the production on that song is way better than the rest of the album. And I went back into it. I was like, why is it? Why does this guitar sound good? Like, that's right, because we've recorded it all in the studio and it's professionally done. <laughs> and then you listen to the stuff I do at home and I'm like, why doesn't mine sound like that? So it was like, sort of, I mean, everything's a learning curve. But you know, the Sturman Dunga, so you kind of have that moment of not silence, but it's almost, you know, like fiddling about as the song kind of gears up and then it bursts into action. The, at the, the very drum, beginning the, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When do you kind of add those moments moments to breathe in an album? Because you have them a few, you kind of have these moments that where it kind of stops for just a second, we kind of catch our breath and then we're off again. When do you kind of get a sense of the shape as a whole and figure out where to place them? Um, that's a good question. I think a lot of the time you'll get carried away recording too much. And I think the uh, pace of a record is obviously something that I thought way more about this time around. And I think it's just over listening. Like sometimes you... If you listen to an album from start to finish, it's like, do you feel satisfied? Do you, it's like a meal. Are you hungry again or do you want more? Or are you like, was that too much? Like, um, and I think that sort of pace, like, because I remember after listening to Glitterbug, so from Hats Off to the Green Bins, the idea was always for that to go into Glitterbug and have that sort of nice ending D and sail off into Glitterbug. And because those drums were so, like, repetitive almost, me and Jelly, like, intentionally mixed the snare and drums so at the end of the song, they're hidden because it's just such a... Like, uh, sort of this chugging rhythm. And we're like, if you could hear that... You know, it's like you almost need to hear the drums once and then never again for the rest of the song because you already know... With, with, a, with a repetitive rhythm like that, it's because your brain is interpreting it. And so you can hide it a bit more and bring out extra detail afterwards. So the intention of that and afterwards, I remember it going straight into Pukebox and I was like, ah, oh, like it's straight back in 
it's it's too quick and maybe Pukebox feels slow now because of that. And then obviously more glitter was sort of the, the touch that we sort of added or sort of thought about with the Mellotron to give it more of a, a calming, yeah, gap or pause or a breath. Like even if it's 30 seconds, it's sort of like, it lets the listener breathe, but it also allows you to sort of take in what has just happened. And I think you don't want it to be like longer than 10 minutes, but you also don't want one every like three or four. So it's sort of that perfect eight to 10 minutes, I think, where it is just a little delay or a little pause. Or So maybe you just have four moments like that in one 45 minute album, but it's enough to, to yeah, to break it all up. But I also didn't want to put in like a slow song, like, I, I, like a lot of my favorite albums, they'll just be like and here's the here's the slow part of the album you're like oh fuck you did so well it's like <laughs> just <laughs> didn't need that only only the vines have done that well that highly evolved record where it's like just transferring from this to that to this to that and i haven't really heard it too much in other records where it's like once you set the pace it's like you don't want you don't want to bring it down and just because you've wrote a slow song, it's like, save it for a slow album. And I think that's what I've sort of learned with this. It's like, everything needs to be its own flavour. Yeah. I mean, even though you don't have a slow song, something like Mango Terrarium does feel a little bit more restrained, maybe, almost is the word. But as you're kind of, until you get to that ending where it kind of ascends and you've got yeah. forever, it's kind of, you feel, there's a kind of a tension builds and then you unleash it when you come in with the climax. Yeah. And I think that riff is such a... Uh, that it's just such a classic 70s shuffle of like it hell reminded me of like an ELO kind of track or something that I don't know Neil Young would kind of play but uh, or Thin Lizzy almost that was the sort of response to that because after that you've got obviously Round the Corner and you had Mundungus beforehand where it was I think because it was so heavy that it needed something just to transition it into a more like bring it back to to upbeat, fun, jiving, hillbilly times. Like, <laughs> I don't know a better word to put in, but it, yeah, that to me, I get what you're saying as well. And I, maybe that's probably why, without even thinking, I made the end like extend and act, go a bit heavier because I wasn't satisfied. Yeah, I guess it comes down to the overall rhythm of the album as well, though. Like it kind of ebbs and flows in that way, if that makes sense. Like it feels like a natural yeah. thing for the ending to ascend in that um, direction. Yeah. That that to me is like that part of the record. Like every time I'd go back and listen to it, I'd be like, would get a little, a little shiver on the back of my neck when that sort of peak of Mango Terrarium came up. So I was like, do you either put it last and crescendo with it or do you sort of calm down slowly? And I think because it came up slowly, it felt like a nice way to maybe peak the album there, have round the corner and then sort of jettison off again in with... Gurney Gridman, um, but have that slow decline, sort of where it goes into half time and then even slower, and then it comes back into a, the acoustic that you first hear in Big Dijon. But that was the only time I recorded it on a different microphone and made the vocals clean and made sure that last part sounded a bit more hi fi. So, like, like almost like a drug trip wearing off where reality's back to normal. You're just like, oh shit, that's right. I live here. Like <laughs> this is <laughs> this is my existence. Yeah. So it, it just it just felt like a nice clean way to end it. Yeah, it's almost like a little Pink Floydy as well, especially with the thing you're kind of doing with the samples. Kind of wish you were here style. Yeah, that uh, mate. Well, track the 
talking has always been a favourite thing of mine because of oh, it's just uh, I think Beatles did it so well in a uh, magical Day mystery life. tour. Yeah, yeah Day in the Life as well, and uh, like I the Walrus, and even like uh, there's that track Flying or whatever, and they've got the sort of yeah that's it it sounds like they're just sort of humming along and uh, but in a way that you're there with them and it's uh rich found a really interesting it was like a 60s documentary on terrariums or how terrariums are made and so we just got and it was this old old english cob like you know that really interesting accent yeah and uh classic classic radio voice so he uh, reversed that <laughs> And it was just like, I just remember being like, that's insane. Like, chuck that in. And you know, but when you're listening to it, it just swirls around and builds and builds and builds and until you get so high pitched that fucking sounds like dogs are going to come running to you. But leaving that voice in just felt like a really nice, yeah, like, like you said, a nod to sort of Pink Floyd or the Beatles. It's interesting what you were saying as well, that you were kind of a niche thing maybe, when you listen back to it now, you think should Mango Terrarium have been the closer because I was just thinking at that there but when you think of Gurney Gridman it doesn't really have the same almost kind of hope and positivity that Gurney Gridman does which is probably why it works as a closer yeah yeah for sure and I think that uh it, the obviously shouting forever or having that as sort of your mantra uh it just felt like such a nice lift and that you weren't expecting anything afterwards so when round the corner does come in it's such a interesting piece of music that you're listening almost more intently to which is weird because i remember if you played like a song after it you were still feeling mango terrarium do you know what i mean you're still having that emotional attachment to the last track so you don't want to come in with like a big thing you almost want to glide away from it slowly if you just if you're putting a conflict and emotion in there it's like you're automatically just going to skip it or you're going to stop the album or... Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you hear such a good song, you're like, holy fuck, I need a break. Like, that is... What just happened? <laughs> like, and I think, as I said, sort of working up to that part in Manga Terrarium, that round the corner just felt like a really nice segue to to slow it down before it did just sort of zoom back up and da, 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 it's sort of back with a heavy guitar. You have the two parts to Gurney Gridman as well, though it kind of shifts halfway through. Was that two ideas kind of most together or how did that kind of structural shift emerge in the songwriting <laughs> process I, I i was trying to i remember being like because that it was generally the last song i wrote and i was like this album needs to finish because it sort of did finish at magnetorium and i was like like you said sort of almost not digestively happy like what there's something i'm missing here there's something that needs to sort of go in. and i was like what song and i sort of looked at songs I was like, what song would be great? And I was like, fucking listening to loads of Queen. I was like, mate, Bohemian Rhapsody. If that song is, that would go anywhere on a record, you would put it in your top 10. It's just such a magnificent tune. I was like, why do I like that? Why do I want to sort of, like what, what, what brings me back to it? And I think the fact that it is weird as fuck, quirky, kind of ballady, kind of strange. And I was like, not trying to attempt to write a Bohemian Rhapsody, but something that just transitioned from the pace of the record, like I said, to sort of something that ended in a way that you were you were satisfied. And I think that long outro of that song I'd had for a while and was going to put on... I've always thought about, I don't know, do, do, do the... What's the word? The pretentious 
acoustic solo record where you're like here's here's me and the feelings but you're like i don't know it just seems like something i was like i kind of don't want to and and i was working on that uh gurney gridman track and i loved the intro loved the sort of uh the middle part and then as soon as i put the acoustic guitar into the the sort of glitch mode it just shimmered and it was like fuck that's like more beautiful than the rest of the album i was like how do I, can I go back and change it? And I was already finished at that point. It was sort of like, we're seeing the last week of conceptualizing and to, to be like, before we sort of really had to go ham on mixing. Um, so I was like, let's make it. There was literally, there's about, about seven minutes more music after that, where it just went spiraling again into something else. And I remember being like, nah, I can't put that in. It's like, it just sort of didn't, it didn't need it. You're yeah. already, you're already satisfied, I think, and I think that was for me. It was like, all right, I'm done, and I don't think I've felt that on a record since part one, where it was like, shit, that's that's it, it's finished, which is such a nice feeling. I think if it wasn't for COVID, I probably would have put out <laughs> like what something really weird. Yeah, I guess as well because there's so much self reflection in that last song. That's maybe what gives it its sense of closure. Yeah, that and that, and it's almost. Uh, it's a little tongue-in-cheek as well, isn't it? It's like you're just talking about drinking and all these big nights and all these sort of, like, mad weekends throughout the album and sort of tour life and have an intervention or whatever. And then it's sort of, at the end of it, it's like a voice of an old man, like, almost like your 80-year-old self, but like, don't worry, mate, it's like, live while you're young. Like, just go for it now. Which kind of, it kind of gives it a cheerful outlook. Because I could have ended it and be like, and now I'm like morbidly obese from all the alcohol I've been drinking and my liver's <laughs> fucked and I'm an alcoholic. And it could have just turned into this horrible like, oh God, like the bad look at alcoholism by Jack McEwen. Like, but it, it just was sort of a nice way to reflect it and, and have it instead of looking at all the negatives of alcohol or looking at all the negatives of whatever. It's like there's a reason it's been in society for fucking millennia like every every culture has a version of of alcohol or i mean most most places ban it because they're like fuck this is hectic everyone's <laughs> themselves and then uh you can't yeah it just is a recipe for disaster but it was kind of nice it was almost like an australian way of or my growing coming of age here in australia and being like all right because it's i mean it's probably the same as scotland i think we both have quite a big drinking big culture drinking culture yeah yeah but it is isn't frowned upon which is kind of nice so it's like you can get away with singing and talking about literally getting like ruined and you're like ah oh, ha 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 you kind of laugh it off whereas i mean it probably yeah you wouldn't want to be saying that in other countries yeah i guess when you're kind of tackling it earlier on in the record it can be a little bit tongue-in-cheek as well sometimes like having a song puke box you know about drinking moonshine and then following it up straight away with the intervention um about <laughs> yeah. mandungus it's quite uh quite kind of self-aware if that makes sense yeah for sure i think that was the that's the two sort of i mean what's the intrapolosaur it's like getting used to waking up and feeling rough and you sort of um that, that just throw back to tour life and you're like and then obviously it was like i really liked the way the lyrics almost could be a narrative and as you sort of read them or if you're listening to the album it's like you really do get a sense of that kind of tie to being like, I suppose most people, I mean, 
you never know when's enough and what's too much and when is it like when do you go all right i'll stop drinking when i'm 30 all right i'll stop drinking when i'm 35 all right i'll stop doing this i mean it's, it's sort of like this yeah self-aware yeah robot <laughs> trying to trying to make a 70s rock record but he's like all right sweet but it's, it's and it's also young enough that i reckon i'll look back on it and well, i don't know it feels like it captures a time yeah when i am a bit older i'd be like wow like that that happened like and that's what was going on and i think i was really proud that sort of did um did do it justice at least and it sort of captures the excitement of what we did go through before covid and obviously touring it was such a such an amazing experience so i think that was the only way to give it justice really yeah tropolisar though you mentioned that it's such a direct probably the most direct song on the record maybe yeah there's less of the kind of fantasticalized to it and it's very upfront about a certain kind of experience and part of your life yeah and i i did like that because i remember when i wrote that i was like there's a best song i've ever wrote oh, there's the best song i've ever wrote i was just like and then sort of as it sort of progressed i was like all right how do i sort of do it and i fuck i just fucked the production a little bit on that one i was like ah and i've been meaning i'd be like i should change it i should change it and then i was like i can't it's like it's done but uh just 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 to clean up the very beginning would be a dream but obviously that's i mean i'm sure everyone can find faults in whatever they do but um the lyrics i was really happy with because it's like yeah it is it's this guy who's like waking up feeling i've changed what is it uh been drinking gin or whatever changed the rum and i'm back on i can't remember what the lyrics are but i should remember (laughs) what the lyrics are but uh it's funny like he's he's trying to work out why he's feeling like shit and you, oh, the the listener is like, well, it's clear, well, your life is shit. You're like, and and but he's waiting for his velvet morning, which I felt I, that was a nice way of describing like to be comfy, to wake up, and generally feel like you are 100 percent happy with your life decisions and you're healthy and how your life is planning out. But there is no way that you think like that when you're drunk. Like, you, I mean, you do when you're drunk, but when you wake up in the morning, it's almost like a 180 degree flip. So that's what the terrors is about. Exactly, yeah. And I think I think I think every song's about it really, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, yeah. But it, it, Apart it from works. Mr. Prism. I, yeah, there you go, Mr. Prism. I've wrote about something else. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.